Good morning, Gospel Life Church. <laughs> Thank you, Titus. This is a big day. This is the first Sunday that we are not in the book of Revelation, or the book of Genesis, sorry. Just to give you an idea of how long we've been in Genesis, like Jeremy said last week, it was November 10th, 2019, and our world was a much different place. Nobody knew what COVID was. Um, as a church, we were still downtown. We have a different president in our country now. In November of 2019, maybe a few of us worked from home. Now maybe just a few of us don't work from home. Hopefully that's getting back to normal. However, amidst all the change, we can confidently rest in the word of God and the promises in that word. And it is a wonderful thing to preach through a book of 50 chapters. Genesis covers almost a thousand years of time as God leads his people from the garden all the way to Egypt. A book that in its second half tells the story of a God who is faithful despite the screw-ups of Abraham, the screw-ups of Isaac, and the screw-ups of Jacob. All of it eventually working toward and pointing toward Jesus who will one day bring us back to that garden. As Jeremy mentioned last week, now that Genesis is complete, we will spend the rest of our summer in Psalms, and then we'll kick off our fall season with the book of Revelation, where we will see how Jesus brings us back to that garden. So, before we dive into Psalm 1, I'm going to pray. So let's do that, and we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. It is life-giving. It is the way to eternal life. Thank you for your faithfulness to our pastor, Jeremy, who gives himself to the preaching of this word. Be with him and with his family as they are on vacation this week. Refresh him and Amy. Give them good rest. Bless the Deck family as with, with a time of closeness together with each other and with you. Let his cup be filled with your grace as he takes this break. Thank you, Lord, for all the time we spent in Genesis. Be with us now as we spend some time in the Psalms. Help us to see more of who you are, not just what we want you to be in our minds, but who you really are on the pages of Scripture. Amen. Psalms. Just saying the word can conjure up an entire gamut of emotions. This is a book that has a full range of emotions, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. Great and wonderful times of rejoicing and hard times of great suffering. It carries us through all of this. Before we get started into Psalm 1 specifically, I want to ask the question, what is this book? What are the Psalms? Many of us who've grown up in the church are familiar with them, but many of us aren't. And it's not as clear-cut as it always seems. Are they songs? Is it poetry? Are they prescriptive or descriptive? Do they tell us what to do or tell us what has happened or is happening? Did one person write all of them or did a lot of people write them? So before we dive in, I want to take a few minutes and just give a general overview of the entire book. Um, and for a lot of you seasoned Christians, this might not be new information. But it might be, and for some of us here who haven't been reading it our whole lives, I hope this can help clear away some of the fog 
that this book is and will cause us to embrace it and all of Scripture. First, generally speaking, what are the Psalms or what is the Psalms? What is this book of Psalms? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a collection of 150 poems, making it the largest by chapter book in the Bible. If you want to go by words, the longest book of the Bible is Jeremiah, coming in at just over 33,000 words. Psalm would actually rank third at 30,000 words, and with, believe it or not, Genesis at number two with 32,000 words. 150 individual poems or songs. The word psalm means praises or songs. Now, we don't have sheet music with them, so we have no idea what the original music may have sounded like, but we have countless gifted musical people today who have put music to many of them, our own Matthew Holmes included. If you notice that first song we sang today was a psalm that Matthew put to music. Um, that was not planned either, by the way. But generally, we, we put it in the genre of poetry because we don't have the music. It's poetry. It's not narrative, as in the poems are not recounting a story to us, right? Like Beowulf is a poem and it tells a story, but that's not what these are. However, many of them have titles and they tell us what the occasion was that brought it about. If you still have your Bibles open to Psalm 1, glance down at Psalm 3. First line of the psalm, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So, if you wanted to go to 2 Samuel chapter 15, you can read all about when David flees his son. Then, come back and read the psalm and you'll have a sense of the emotion he was feeling at that time. Or, one of the more famous ones is Psalm 51, when David had committed his great sin with Bathsheba. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Psalm 51. So are the Psalms telling a story? No. But many of them are connected with a particular event. Which brings up the question, naturally, so who wrote all these Psalms and when did they write them? <clears throat> Most of them were written by David. 73 of them were written by David. And it, that his name is on them. And it goes without saying, obviously then, they were written during his lifetime. On top of that, the New Testament, quoting the Psalms, gives him credit for two more, bringing basically his total to 75, which is exactly half of the 150. Next, we have a name by the name, a man by the name of Asaph. He was part of the tribe of Levi, or the priests of the temple. He was put in charge of the singing in the temple. He has 12 of them to his name. Then we have the sons of Korah. They wrote 11 of them. Solomon has two to his name and Moses one to his name. The remaining 49, we have no indication of who the author is. It might be one of these people. It's just that they didn't put their name on those particular psalms. So that's the who as far as the when. David, Asaph, and Solomon all lived in the same time period. And it's also possible that the sons of Korah lived during this time period. <clears throat> the 120 years from King Saul to the end of King Solomon, we call that the United Kingdom or the Unified Kingdom. Saul ruled for 40 years. And after Saul, David ruled for another 40 years. And after him, his son Solomon ruled for 40 years. 
After Solomon, the nation was split into the two tribes and the ten tribes. But like I said, this 120 years is called the Unified Kingdom. And it was when most of the named Psalms were written. The one Psalm, Moses, Psalm 90, was written, obviously, well before any of these guys were around. Most likely near the end of Moses' life as they were about to enter the promised land. So, we have the what. Psalms is 150 poems. The who, mostly David and these other men that we listed. The when, mostly during the unified kingdom. Now the why. And the why is always going to be the most important question we ask. As we know, yes, it was these men that we talked about that wrote it, but it was the Spirit of God that inspired them to write. But why? Why do we have a book of poems as part of the Bible? It doesn't always seem like it fits. And this was my line of thinking for a long time when I was younger. I just thought that most of the Old Testament was a history of the people of God, and the New Testament was all about Christ and his church. But then you had this book of poems, and it never really held out a lot of appeal to me. It was disjointed. It's not very linear. <clears throat> it didn't tell a clear-cut story or give a history. Sure, it had its high points, and I never thought it shouldn't be in there, but I could probably just do without it. Then two things happened. First, I had a friend in high school and college. His name was Jason, and he loved the Psalms, and they spoke to him more than any other book in the Bible. It was then that I realized at the wise age of 18 that maybe not everyone is just like me, right? <laughs> and God has this wonderfully diverse book because he has a wonderfully diverse people. Second, however, I came to realize by common grace that this is part of who God is. And if we want to know him more fully and see him more clearly, we need to see that this is part of who he is, this poetic and emotional part. We are created in the image of God. God has emotions and has given us the capacity to feel and express emotions. And sure, we get off track. It's true. We can get off track in what we think about God. And we can think wrong things about God. And that's the time maybe we need to read some of Paul and correct what and how we're thinking about God. And we can get off track with wrong feelings about God. And maybe that's a time where we need to read the Psalms to guide us into right feelings about God. And maybe not to correct our feelings, but to affirm them as well. To let us know that what I'm going through is okay. Because there's a God in heaven who loves us and sympathizes with us and knows how we feel and most of all can comfort us with these Psalms. So all that to say, the why. Why is the Psalms here? To help us know and feel God more accurately for who he really is. So that's my conclusion on the general of the Psalm. Now, Psalm 1. I chose to preach on Psalm 1 because I thought it was a 
good place to start right at the beginning and to set the tone for the start of this short series. It's about two different people, the righteous and the wicked. The psalm is neatly divided into three parts. Verses 1 and 2 is a description of the righteous man. Verses 3 to 4 is a picture of what he is like and what the wicked man is like. And verses 5 to 6 is the conclusion and what each of their final fates will be. My plan is to walk through the text and then apply it to our lives. Very straightforward. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Right away, the first word, blessed. Blessed is the man. We see this in Scripture all the time, and we see it in our culture all the time. It's part of how we talk. I feel blessed. I'm so blessed. Hashtag blessed. Right? We think, think back with me, for those of you who are here, um, Pastor Jeremy talked about this word a lot in our Sermon on the Mount series. Nine times in the first 11 verses, Jesus uses that term, blessed. And do you remember what we emphasize is the real meaning of that word? It's not, <clears throat> I have more material property or more emotional stability than I should, or than I feel that I should, or than you, and therefore, <clears throat> I'm blessed. It's more than a temporary state of either physical or emotional status. What it does mean is a state of well-being in relationship to God, not his gifts. Blessed is the man, or you could say, favored by God is the man. That is what is meant in the book of Matthew, and that's what is meant here. And it's about our right standing with God. Now the man who what? Blessed is the man who what? Keep reading. And you'll see we have a, a little bit of a logic statement. It's a not this, but that kind of logic. First, the not this, the negative. What does this blessed man not do? First, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. When this man needs counsel, he isn't seeking it from the wicked. He doesn't take their advice. He knows better than to do that. He moves on. He knows the advice is bad because he knows the person giving it is bad. They're wicked. Wicked people don't give wise counsel. They give wicked counsel. And they may not even know that it's wicked counsel. They don't know what good counsel is, and so they can't give it. <coughs> Excuse me. Second, this man doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that he avoids getting in their way. It means he doesn't hang out with them. However, we're all sinners. We all hang out with sinners. And we should hang out with sinners. We work with them. We're friends with them. We share meals with them. We know that, right? But the thrust here is people who openly, repeatedly, and blatantly fly in the face of what God has commanded. Those are the sinners we don't stand with. We don't take our stand with those people, right? Third, the righteous man doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Sitting in the seat of someone has this picture that, that you are them. Like if you go into your boss's office 
and sit at his desk and put your feet up on, uh, you know, on their desk? What's that represent? You're the boss now, right? Or if your dad has his chair and as a kid you sit in it, it's empowering, right? It's like, I'm the dad now. You And just think of um, how you'd feel if you sat in a, a throne of a kingdom. You would represent what that seat represents. You would be king. A kingdom without a king leaves the throne empty until a new king is named. Nobody sits there. If someone did, they would be seen as the king. If a seat with a sign on it that says scoffers sit here was present, this man doesn't sit there. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, in this first section, take a step back and look at it with a little more of a wide-angle lens with me. And we can see that this part of the poem has a pattern. The man doesn't walk, stand, or sit with the wicked, sinners, or scoffers. Three verbs, three nouns. No walking, no standing, and definitely no sitting with any wicked, sinners, and scoffers. So the question is why? Why doesn't he do this? What does he do? Or the positive side of our little logic statement. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now ask yourself this question. How does he know who the wicked sinning scoffers are? Who told him that they were this way? And to who told him not to walk and stand and sit with them? Where did this man gain such discernment? The answer is clear. He knows how to identify these people because he delights in the law of the Lord day and night. He isn't wise on his own accord. He doesn't avoid them and therefore delights in the law of the Lord. It's the other way around. He avoids them because he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. You shall lie down and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. This man does what is commanded in Deuteronomy. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And he is able to see who the wicked, sinning scoffers are. And he is blessed because of it. Next, what we see in the verses 3 and 4 is what this man is like and what the wicked are like. The poet uses these pictures to help us. First, our righteous man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. This is a great picture for a few reasons. First, 
The school we're sitting in right now, River Tree, River Tree, there's a picture of bringing up children in this school to be like this. Trees planted by streams of water, prospering in all that they do, bearing fruit, leaves that don't wither. Do you just, you just picture some great big tree, you know, leaning out over a stream? We've probably all seen them like that. And uh, it's lush, it's strong, it gets all the water it needs because it never runs dry because the stream never runs dry. It probably has a rope by it on it, you know, swing out, splash into the, into the river. It delights in this stream. And this tree, this tree is planted down deep and it loves where it is, day and night. Isn't that just a wonderful picture? Day and night, just sucking up the water and bearing fruit. The verse says that this tree yields its fruit in its season. So why does God make trees bear fruit? Is it for their own good or for the good of others to eat it? Strong, healthy, fruit-bearing trees feed us. People like this feed us. That's the first reason I love this. It's just the the picture and the reality of a strong, fruit-bearing tree. The other reason I love this picture is, is from elsewhere in the scripture, Revelation 22. 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. Both of these pictures, strong trees, both trees planted next to streams, both bearing fruit. One is a picture of a righteous man, and one is a picture of the new heavens. It's beautiful. Now verse 4, sticking with the agricultural themes and images, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. We have this amazing picture of this big, strong, fruit-bearing tree, and we hold it up to this chaff that the wind drives away. Most of us, probably, are city folk. <laughs> Do we even know what chaff is? <laughs> it's the debris left over from grain. It's, quote, the husks of grain and grasses that are separated during threshing. Cut up straw used for fodder. Worthless matter, refuse. It blows away and nobody cares. It certainly can't feed anyone like fruit can. The wind drives it away. Not our tree. The wind it takes to drive chaff away wouldn't do a thing to our tree planted by our stream. The righteous man and the wicked, the tree and the chaff. Verses 5 and 6. The final outcome of these two men. It's interesting that the end of this psalm doesn't conclude with what type of life you should live or why one way is better than the other, but we come right to the final judgment as if to say, you understand that nothing else matters. A lifetime of being like a tree or like chaff, 
all comes down to this moment. A lifetime of delighting in the law of the Lord or sitting in the seat of scoffers comes to this. This is where the path leads. Verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's it. Game over. The wicked will not stand. In other words, their lives will not measure up. A lifetime of wickedness has come due. They will not stand in the judgment. And sinners will not be found in the congregation of the righteous. There will be a congregation of the righteous. And if life was nothing but chaff that the wind blew away, it won't end up in that congregation. Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting to me that in this last two verses about judgment, we have just four lines, and only one of them is for the righteous. And on top of that, it's very simple and straightforward, but very powerful. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Think about that. He knows the way of the righteous. He just knows it. The righteous man has absolutely nothing to fear because the Lord knows his way. And I think it would be safe to infer that the Lord not only knows his way, but knows him. This righteous man is known by the Lord. But the way of the wicked will perish. The righteous is known by the Lord, and the wicked will perish. A final, clear, and simple contrast in this psalm that is full on contrasts. Walking, standing, and sitting with the wicked sinning scoffers, or delighting in the law of the Lord. A fruit-bearing tree that prospers in all it does, or chaff that is blown away by the wind. Not being able to stand in judgment, perishing, or being known by the Lord. This is the contrast that is set before you. And now, it's my task to apply it to our lives. You have two paths to take. And as an elder of this church, I implore you, choose the right path, right? Delight in the law of the Lord. Be the tree, not the chaff. Be known by the Lord. Don't be the wicked that can't stand at the judgment. Meditate on this book day and night. Bear fruit for others. Do this, and as it says in the very first word of the psalm, you'll be blessed. There it is. Application done, right? Not quite. I have one more question for our application. And it can mean the difference between ending up like a tree or like chaff. My question is this. Who is this man? It's not me. It's not Jeremy or Matthew or any other elder here at Gospel Life. Who is it? I certainly don't delight in the law of the Lord day and night. Others aren't always feeding off of my fruit. 
Most days my deeds feel like chaff, being blown away by the wind. I scoff at people. I have this problem of original sin coursing through my veins. All of us do. So I ask, who is this man of righteousness? Who is he? Paul, in the book of Romans, quoting the book of Psalms, tells us, there is no one righteous. No, not one. So the first part of my application really becomes an impossible task for us. If we try this on our own, if we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do what this psalm says, it's impossible. So what's the answer? And hopefully we all know where this is going. The man in Psalm 1 is not just a righteous man. It's the man of righteousness, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the tree planted by the stream. He is the one that bears fruit for us to eat. He is the one who perfectly, from eternity past to eternity future, delights not just in the law of the Lord, but in his Father himself. He stands in the judgment, and not for sins he had committed, but for the wicked, sinning scoffers like us who have been united to him. The truth of the matter is, if we try to live up to what this psalm is calling us to, we have no hope. Because it requires a gray line, and gray lines don't work with a holy God. He doesn't measure out our lives on a scale. Sure, I have times that I delight in the law of the Lord, but day and night? Really? No, none of us do. And I have times that my fruit is good and I can help people, but all the time, no. And so we have these gray lines, and not one of us does this. We can't live up to what this psalm is calling us to. However, Jesus, the righteous manna here in Psalm 1, calls us to repent by his power, turn from our wicked ways, lay down our striving to be the righteous man of Psalm 1, and by his grace, through faith, become united to him. And this is the miracle. By being united to him, his perfect righteousness becomes ours. And we will be known by the Lord and stand in the judgment. And in his righteousness becoming ours, our failings become his, and he bore those failings for us on the cross. Yes, absolutely we should view Psalm 1 as prescription that is for our good. We should choose the right path. I'm not denying that. But we should also remember that it is only because of Christ and his work on the cross that the blessing of Psalm 1 can become ours. It's not by our working, but by being united to this man of righteousness. To Jesus Christ and we celebrate this and remember this work every week at the table right so I'm gonna pray and then we'll take our communion together Lord we love your righteous ways they are a blessing help us to see and know and feel that in Psalm 1 and help us to feel and know that it's more about Christ 
and his work and less about us and our work. His work that we celebrate now. Amen.